Welcome to the Unconventional Wedding Planning Podcast. My name is Ashley, and I am planning my very own unconventional surprise budget micro-wedding in the middle of a pandemic. If you have accepted that your wedding day will not be perfect, then you are in the right place. Welcome to episode 20. Can you believe that we made it? If you've noticed from my posting schedule, I'm posting kind of sporadically, sometimes every other day, sometimes a few days or a week even goes by between episodes. And that's just because I'm kind of in the thick of, you know, engagement and wedding planning and all that good stuff. So I'm just kind of posting whenever uh, inspiration strikes and it's a pretty heavy posting schedule right now. I don't know if that'll keep up forever, but we have made it. We have made it all the way to episode 20. So in honor of that, I thought I would do a Q&A episode. So today I'm going to be looking at, let's see, five. We'll see how, how we go. Maybe a few more, maybe a few less. But we'll be looking at five common wedding planning questions and just giving you my take, my opinion, and maybe some more unconventional ideas, some thoughts uh, to get you thinking outside of the box about how to tackle these. And hopefully if you enjoy this kind of episode, I will do more of them in the future and maybe even ask you for your questions instead of just Googling wedding questions. <laughs> we'll see where we go. All right, so question number one is how early is too early to start planning your wedding, trying on dresses, visiting venues, etc.? So the first thing I'll say here is if you are newly engaged, I totally, totally, totally get the pressure and the urge, I guess, to immediately start, you know, pinning things on Pinterest and saving things on Instagram and looking at venues and posting in Facebook groups and just getting started because that's, you know, that's kind of like somebody said go, you know, they just opened the gates, you're, uh, I don't know, a horse running, <laughs> running out of the gates, and you just want to do everything as, as fast as possible. And as soon as you, you know, flip that first page of the bridal magazine, or open up that first wedding website, you're overwhelmed with all the different things that you have to plan and the things they're telling you you got to do 18 months ahead of time. And it's just, it's a lot. And you're probably really eager to get started because somebody just asked you to marry them or you just asked somebody to marry you. And it's super exciting. And that's, you know, the whole point you're supposed to be planning this wedding. I will say, take your time, enjoy your engagement. You only get to be a fiance for so long. Um, you know, if you rush right into the wedding and the babies and blah, 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 and all that other stuff, then you've kind of checked off all those boxes without really taking a moment to just enjoy them. So enjoy your engagement. Enjoy staring down at your ring. If you have a ring, enjoy calling your partner, your fiance, or whatever you want to call them. Celebrate that. If you want to have an engagement party, it doesn't even have to be, you know, a big formal party. Maybe you just want to get together with some friends or family. If it's, you know, COVID times, whoever's in your bubble, maybe you want to do it virtually and just really enjoy being in this engagement stage of your life. Cause that's not going to last forever. You know, for most couples, it's about a year, maybe less, maybe a bit more. Uh, with COVID, you know, maybe a couple years, um, but it's not going to last forever. And that's super special. So definitely sit in that, enjoy it, try not to, you know, race off to start planning. Once you do sort of get that urge to, okay, you know what, it's time to go, I want to start planning. The first thing you need to do is talk to your partner. Maybe you've already had these conversations, you know, before your engagement, if you already started to talk about your wedding before then, but you definitely want to sit down and talk to your partner. This is not one of those things where you want to run off and, you know, buy an outfit and book a venue and hire a photographer without ever having that conversation with your partner. So really sit down and figure out what you both want, figure out what the purpose of this wedding is, what's important to you, what you want it to look like and feel like, what are your non-negotiables, what do you not care about? 
Next, you'll need to decide on the budget and your guest count. You really cannot do anything before you know those two things because the, you know, the venue you book, if you have a budget of $1,000 and you're trying to invite you know, 300 people, that's going to be a very specific kind of venue that will allow you to stay within that budget and have that many people. So there's really no point in trying to do any planning or book anything until you know your actual firm number for your budget and your pretty firm number for your guest count. So again, that's something you're going to want to sit down with your partner, have those discussions, figure out what you're comfortable spending, who you want to have there, the you know the size of wedding you're looking for. You might need to call in your parents or godparents or you know whoever else might be contributing to your wedding and say, "Hey, you know, we're starting planning. If you were planning to contribute to the wedding, we'd love to know what number you're comfortable with so we can you know, make some realistic plans. Once you have all that, you know, your budget, your guest count, you and your partner are totally on the same page. You've had these conversations and this is a process that could take you a couple weeks, a couple months to really get, you know, on the same page and, and be with each other in this, then you can definitely start planning and go ahead, start planning early. There really is no too early to start planning. Um, as I shared in the last episode, all things rings, my partner and I had started our wedding planning before we even got officially engaged. So that kind of flies in the face of everything I just said about enjoying your engagement. Um, but we were on the same page and we had talked about the budget and the guests. So at least I got that part right. Um, but especially if you are planning a wedding in current COVID times, this is being recorded in late 2020. But we're already hearing that so many venues and vendors are booking up for 2021 and already, you know, starting to book pretty, pretty heavily for 2022. And that's because we have so many postponed weddings from this year, they got bumped to 2021. So you've basically got two years worth of weddings in 2021. And if things with COVID don't really turn around, and those all have to get bumped again, then we're going to have three years worth of weddings in 2022. So it's going to be busy. So if you're planning to get married kind of in the next year or two, you definitely want to get started early. You want to start looking at venues and those really important vendors like, you know, your photographer and people who can only do one wedding a day, especially if you have your heart set on a specific venue, a specific vendor or a specific date. If you're like, hey, we have to get married on um, February 12th, you know, that's our date. It has to be that date. Or I fell in love with this photographer. It has to be that person who captures our wedding. Then you definitely want to get started early because you're going to be stuck with whatever availability that vendor has, that venue has, or, you know, if you have that specific date, you're basically going to have to shop around and see who is available for you. I will say if you are planning to book early, especially, you know, you're not getting married for a year or two, but you really want to lock in a venue or a vendor or whatever it is, make sure you read your contract really, really carefully. Check to see what happens if um, if you change your mind or if, you know, if life happens, if you decide to elope or you decide to start a family. <coughs> oh, <and coughs> or if your dog decides to become an important part of, <laughs> of your wedding and your venue is not dog friendly, then what do you do if you have... A dog that only wants to bark when you record a podcast. What do you do? But yes, I'm not even going to bother editing that out. Sorry, can't be bothered. But read your contract. Um, really look it over and see, hey, do we get our deposit back? Are we able to move our date? Is this vendor um, flexible? Will they let us make changes if something happens? And if not, are we comfortable sacrificing, you know, whatever amount of money it is in order to book that person? So that's something that you'd want to talk to your partner about. And even if you say, you know, oh, 100%, we love this florist, we definitely want to go with them, you don't know, right? Two years from now, life could look very different from how it currently looks. And you might not want to be tied 100%, thousands and thousands of dollars to something that might not work for you two or three years from now.
Okay, question two. So question two is, we want to skip the wedding party, but I want my brother to stand up on my side. Would that look weird? Or basically just any questions to do with a lopsided wedding party. So where the, you know, in a hetero couple, the bride has more people standing up on her side than the groom does or vice versa, as well as having different gendered wedding parties. Traditionally, the bride will have women stand behind her as bridesmaids and the groom will have men stand behind him as groomsmen. But what if you want to have a man stand on the woman's side or a woman stand on the man's side? Basically, there's just a ton of questions around this. And this is something if you are in any wedding groups on Facebook, you will see these questions all the time. People are always freaking out like, oh my God, I have five bridesmaids and my partner only has four groomsmen. What are we going to do? It's going to look so weird. Or strangely enough, there are a lot of um, questions that kind of start with, oh, I had to demote a bridesmaid or, oh, I'm no longer having this person in my wedding party, which makes me a little bit nervous for the kind of drama that's going on with those weddings. But basically, bottom line is you do you. It is not going to look weird at all. No one is going to care. No one is going to walk away from your wedding saying, oh my God, can you believe they had six bridesmaids and seven groomsmen? Nobody cares. <laughs> it really does not matter. And it's silly to think that you and your partner should have the exact same number of special people in your lives. Or to think that, you know, just because you're a woman, you should only have special women in your lives. Or just because you're a man, Man, you should only have special men in your life or you know if you're non-binary you don't identify as a man or a woman like that's it's just silly have whoever you want to stand up on your side if it makes more sense for you to have somebody of a different gender on your side go for it if it makes more sense for you to have four people and your partner to have three go for it it is totally fine nobody cares nobody notices and honestly it's happening a lot more at you know modern weddings if you've been to weddings in the last couple years you see this a lot it's no longer like a weird thing to have a man stand up behind the bride or a woman stand up behind the groom. It's not weird if they have different numbers and you can come up with all, there's all these cutesy names. Like you can have, uh, what do they call them? Like a groomsmaid or a man of honor or a, you know, whatever it is, you can all just call everyone, you know, your best people, your wedding attendants. You don't have to gender it at all. Um, but if you want to make up something cutesy and your people don't mind, then go for it. If you're worried about what that's gonna look like on the day, there's lots of different options. So for example, let's go with the situation of you're gonna have six bridesmaids and five groomsmen of any gender. I'm just using those, I'm sorry, gendered terms just to, to keep the language the same. But let's say you'll have six people on one side, five on the other. What you can do is as they're walking down the aisle, you can either have them walk one at a time and you can stagger it, have the this group of six go first. So it would be, let's say, bridesmaid, groomsman, bridesmaid, groomsman. You get the idea. You could also have them pair off and you could have one groomsman have two bridesmaids on his arm, right? No problem. You could skip the aisle walk altogether and have them just already standing at the front or sitting at the front. You could do the aisle walk and then just have them sit if you don't want, you know, the photos of the ceremony to have six people on one side and five on the other. Totally fine. For photos, you can, again, you can stagger them. You can have them standing in groups. You can do everyone on one side. You have a lot of fun with it. A lot of creativity. I'm sure your photographer has dealt with the situation with an uneven wedding party or with different genders, and they'll have lots of great creative ideas for you. If you're kind of thinking all of this sounds like a lot of drama and you're not really into it anymore, I feel you. It's one of the reasons why I am not having a wedding party at all. And if you are curious about that and kind of feeling you might want to do that as well, head back to episode four called Why I Won't Have a Wedding Party. And I kind of get into all the details of why it's actually a really great idea to skip the wedding party completely, no drama, 
uh, saves your budget. And you can still invite all of your friends to have an awesome time with you. You can invite them to get ready with you, to go outfit shopping with you, to help you party plan. You can still have a bachelor or bachelorette party, and you can still take photos with them. So you can get all the fun of the wedding party without any of the stress or the expense. Let's move on to question three. So this question is, should we have an after party, a morning after brunch, both or neither? So for this one, it depends on a few things. So first, it depends on you. Between um, you and your partner, what is your style? Are you the kind of people who like to stay up late and party and drink and dance? Are you the kind of people who love, you know, every Sunday, your big brunch people, you get your mimosas, you get your eggs, Benny, you get your pancakes. Um, do you want to have that atmosphere of just sort of keeping the party going? You know, like once the serum or once the reception, sorry, is finished, you just, you know, you don't want it to stop. You want to keep hanging out with your best friends and keep partying? Or would you rather have, you know, a new day, feeling a bit fresh and having those conversations you might have missed out on the night before? So it depends on your style. The next thing, it depends on your budget. What can you afford? So there are definitely ways to do both an after party and a morning after brunch cheaply. For the after party, it could be a thing simple as, hey, come on back to our place or our parents' place. You know, we, we got a few um, kegs or whatever, cans of beer or bottles of wine, whatever your, your crowd drinks. You could even make it a BYOB situation and maybe people can drop off their liquor ahead of time. Um, or maybe you're super cool and you can do it sober and still have an awesome time. Maybe you order a pizza, but you can definitely keep costs pretty low if you know, you're know you just going to your parents' basement. Or even you could go to a local bar or a pub and kind of say, hey, first round's on us. Or you don't pick up the tab at all and everyone's kind of on their own. So you definitely do that on the cheap. For the morning after brunch, again, that might be something, maybe that's something your venue includes if you're getting married at a hotel. A lot of them will have options for you to host a brunch. Maybe it's even included in the package, you know, everyone who stays at the hotel gets a free complimentary breakfast. So basically, you're just showing up at the hotel breakfast the next morning and saying hi and pretending like you've hosted it. But really, it's, you know, Best Western put it on for you. So that could be, you know, done cheaply. Of course, you could also do both of those really extravagantly. If you wanted to have this big wild after party, you could rent, you know, a party bus or a limo to take everyone to this separate venue that you've paid for hire a DJ, pay for an open bar, have lighting, have glow sticks, have a fog machine, all these different things. The morning after brunch, that could also be, you know, at a separate venue that you've paid for and professionally catered and you could have gifts and decor and flowers. So you can really go um, sort of as extravagant or as budget as you want. And I think you just have to sit down with your partner and say, hey, you know, what can we afford? How much money do we have left after all of the actual wedding expenses and does it make more sense to pour that into an after party or a morning after brunch or can we afford both of them or maybe neither of them. <laughs> the next thing you want to do is um, check in with your audience. So do you have a lot of young people or a lot of old people. Typically speaking, it's the young people who are going to hang out for that after party. And it's also the young people who will miss that morning after brunch because they are too tired and they can't make it to uh, breakfast before 10 a.m. when it closes. So if you are wanting to hang out more with the younger people of your party, maybe people in you know their 20s who are able to stay up late and hang out after the reception, then you might want to go for the after party. If you prefer to see more of your older crowd or maybe everyone, maybe you've got a bunch of early risers, then you might want to opt for the brunch. And lastly, it depends on your wedding day. So what sort of a wedding are you holding? Um, if you have a certain time, let's say, 
your reception venue says, hey, you need to be out of here by 9.30. For, for some reason, it closes at 9.30 and you're sort of saying, hey, you know what? Like that's too early for us. No one's going to be ready to go home yet. We want to keep the party going. Then that's a great reason to have an after party and to arrange for that. Um, or maybe your venue, you know, maybe it's the other way around and your venue says, yep, you don't have to leave till 1 a.m., um, but we do need you to clean up. You have to remove all of your rentals and lighting and decor before you go. And you're thinking like, okay, by the time we clean up and everything, it's going to be, you know, two or three in the morning. And that means I'm way too tired and I do not want to have an after party. I just want to hit the hay and maybe do a brunch the next morning, you know, at 11 or 12, or maybe skip it altogether, which is totally fine. So it depends on the type of wedding day you are having. And bottom line on this one is the after party or the morning after brunch are totally optional. Please don't feel like you are forced into doing either of these things. They're just extra events. And at the end of the day, they will cost you more money. So if it's not included in your budget, if it's not something you can afford, don't worry about it. Um, you don't have to do them. It's just up to you. If it's something you want, awesome. If not, totally skip it. Okay, question four. So question four is, is it tacky to have an open bar? So, oh, sorry, that should say a closed bar. Is it tacky to have a closed bar? So an open bar is where the couple picks up the tab and they tell people, hey, all of the alcohol is on us tonight. Order whatever you want. And that's a lot of the times you'll see people getting shots and cocktails and beers and wines, just going a little bit wild because the bar is open and they're not paying for anything. And then on the other hand, a closed bar would be where you do ask your guests to pay for their drinks. So if you decide to have a closed bar, it's not tacky. It's actually very realistic. Most people cannot afford to do a completely open bar with all different types of, you know, hard alcohol, wine, beer, cider, craft cocktails, all those different things um, for a wedding, especially if you're having, you know, hundreds of people there. It's just not realistic to be able to pay for drinks all night long for everybody. So no, it is not tacky. Do not feel bad if you can't do an open bar. That's very difficult to do. Um, especially if you're paying for it yourself or if you don't have a parent who's dropping, you know, tens of thousands of dollars on your wedding day. So don't feel bad about it. And know that sometimes, you know, that open bar does sort of lead to a little bit more of a rowdy atmosphere. There's definitely guests who take advantage of that, who they know it's an open bar. So they'll right away, you know, before dinner, they order a round of shots for the table and, and they go up and do that a few more times throughout the meal. And people can get, you know, kind of silly. Um, and if that's not the atmosphere you want, then a great way to avoid that is actually to not have an open bar, even if you could afford it. You also get a lot of people who won't finish their drinks if you have an open bar because they don't care. They didn't pay for it. So they'll order a drink, take a few sips, and then, oh, I love this song. They go to the dance floor, they come back. They don't care to find their drink. They'll just go order another one, right? Whereas if they had to pay for that drink, you better believe they'll hold on to it. They're not going to be putting that down and then dropping another, you know, five bucks on another drink. So don't feel bad. This is not tacky at all if you want to do a closed bar, but you do need to let guests know ahead of time so they can be prepared, especially if it is going to be a cash bar where our guests actually need to pay in cash, which, um, you know, in this day and age, not a lot of people have cash on them. So if they need to pay in cash, definitely let them know ahead of time so that they can come prepared and you don't have a mass exodus of guests going to the ATM in the middle of your reception. There's also a lot of alternatives. You don't have to do a completely open bar or a completely closed bar. You can kind of meet somewhere in the middle. So a lot of couples like to do drink tickets or drink chips or drink coins, whatever it is. And basically you give each guest, you know, one to two tickets and that's saying, hey, the first one to two drinks are on us. Just give your ticket or your chip or your coin, whatever it is. Just give this to the bartender, 
get your drink. And then after, you know, you run out of tickets, then you're on your own. You've got to pay for drinks after that. Um, another option is you can have some bottles of wine on the table and that's kind of saying, hey, we'll cover the wine you want to drink, you know, during dinner at the table. But if you want any other drinks after dinner, uh, you're on your own, head up to the bar. You could also do more of like a partially open bar. So that's where maybe only are serving beer and wine, but no hard alcohol. Or if you want to include hard alcohol, you know, maybe you only have a few options and it's not that top shelf, you know, fancy imported vodka. It can just be the, the cheaper stuff. Um, another option is to do a signature cocktail. So that could be, you know, included for free. And then if guests want to drink something else besides that, they've got to pay for it. Of course, if you are serving alcohol, make sure you are fully uh, licensed and insured for that. If you're working with a venue, they'll probably have their own liquor license and insurance and, you know, their bartenders are able to serve. If you're kind of doing a DIY thing at a, at a barn, just make sure you have all of those legal boxes ticked, especially if you are uh, responsible for all your guests and, you know, you're serving them alcohol. You really want to make sure you don't get in trouble for that. Um, and then in terms of how much alcohol, there's tons of drink calculators online where you can kind of put in the number of guests that you're expecting, how long your reception is going to be. You can even say, oh, hey, we've got, you know, more beer drinkers or, oh, actually our, our group loves whiskey, you know, whatever it is. And that'll give you an idea, an estimate of how much alcohol you're going to need. Uh, if you're doing a DIY wedding where you get to bring in your own alcohol, that can often be cheaper, um, but then you do have to load up. So lots of Lots of great advice online for this one in terms of how much alcohol you actually want to, to purchase. Um, and hopefully you're able to return the alcohol that is unopened. I know there's a lot of things of like, hey, don't get the, if, you, if you're buying, you know, beer bottles, don't get the labels wet or else they won't be returned, things like that. So just make sure you do your research there if you are planning to do some returns um, after your wedding. Or if you're not going to do any returns, make sure it's all alcohol you really love so you can take it home with you. And last thing on this one, the type of wedding you have is really going to determine the amount of drinking that there's going to be. So let's say you have a brunch wedding where you have, you know, your ceremony at 10 and then you have a lovely brunch reception at 11 and the whole thing's kind of wrapped up by like three o'clock. That's probably not going to be a wedding where people are doing shots and, you know, getting silly on the dance floor versus if you're having an evening wedding and you're doing a super late night reception and you've got a bump and dance floor with the DJ and the smoke machine and the lights and all that, that's more of an environment where people are going to want to be pretty liquored up to, uh, to get involved. So if you're concerned about drinking or having to pay for the bar, that's another place where you can kind of help to curb people's attitudes and amount that they would want to drink just by the type of wedding that you're having. All right, let's move on to our fifth and final question. And the question is, what is the difference between save the dates and invitations and when do I send them? So this is a huge one. Um, if you are involved in any wedding groups on Facebook or other places, you'll see people are always asking questions about save the dates and invites. When do I send them? Let me know which one you like best. What do I do? So let me try to shed some light on this one. <laughs> so the difference between a save the date and an invitation. A save the date is basically a heads up. You're literally telling people, save my date. So it usually looks like a postcard. There might be some photos. Uh, a lot of people like to use their engagement photos on this. And it's got your name, your partner's name, the date of your wedding, and the location. And it's usually just the city. Um, you don't have to get specific. Oh, you know, it's Mount Sinai Church on 32 Bathurst Street. No one cares about that. Just, you know, you can say Minnesota or, you know, San Francisco, wherever it is. Um, whereas the invitation is a formal, 
you know, here are all the details. It's the day, the time, the venue, the link to the website. And that is where you're actually asking people to RSVP and let you know that they're coming. So with the save the date, the weird part is you basically need to know all the details of your wedding before you can send that out. So you can't send out your save the date until you actually have your wedding booked because you can't just say, oh, okay, you know, we're hoping it's going to be on July 11th, but we don't have a venue. We haven't booked anything. You really do need to have all that booked. And likely if you've already booked your venue, you have the, you know, the address, you have the time and all that, but you just don't put that on the save the date because it's not information that your guests need to know yet. But already you do need to have the venue. You need to have the date. You need to have your guest list. You need to have all of that. It is customary to send save the dates to all the people you then send invitations to and vice versa. It is not nice to send a save the date to someone and then not actually invite them. You might be able to get away with it the other way around. Let's say you have uh, 50 people on your guest list and you only send save the dates to your top 20 that you are like 100% sure. I want to invite these people. I really love them. I need them to be there. And then you send invitations to, you know, all 50 when the time comes or 45 or 30, you know, whatever it is, you could do that, but you can't really do it the other way around where you send out 50 save the dates and then only 30 invitations. People are expecting an invitation. So when you send that save the date, you really want to be super, super sure this is the person that you want to invite. You can't really take those back. The only exception, of course, being, you know, COVID. <laughs> if a giant pandemic happens and your wedding gets canceled or postponed, then you can kind of renege on those save the dates. And I think I could probably do a whole separate episode on how to uninvite people or <laughs> let them know that there's been a big change of plans and they no longer need to save your date. Luckily, people are, you know, coming up with a lot of creative ways to do that. And it sounds like guests are being really, really graceful and allowing those things to happen because they understand we're in the middle of a pandemic. <laughs> um, I will reference here, I did a mini-sode a little while ago called Do You Need Save the Dates? And if you are kind of wondering a little bit more about save the dates, not sure if you actually need them and any of that stuff, definitely head back to that mini-sode. Uh, super short, quick listen. Basically, I believe you only need to send save the dates if you are doing a destination wedding. So if people need to make travel arrangements or fly to come to your wedding, or if you're getting married on a really popular date, like if it is a long weekend, you know, July 4th or Thanksgiving, whatever it is. And there's also lots of alternatives. You know, if you're trying to save some money, save the environment, save some paper and postage, you don't have to do uh, written save the dates. You don't have to do printed save the dates that you put in the mail. You can just let people know. The whole point is literally just to say, hey, here is our date, please save it. You know, put it in your calendar. And you can do that on the phone, through a text, through an email, lots of alternatives. So no need to get too hung up on sending those out in paper. In terms of timelines, traditionally save the dates will go out six to eight months before your wedding day, and then invitations will go out six to eight weeks before your wedding day. Now that six to eight week window for invitations is really, really tight. So that is something you want to double and triple check with your venue and your caterer. When do they need those final numbers? And also for your own sanity, you know, if you're doing things like making up seating charts and if you're drawing, you know, beautiful um, calligraphy place cards or whatever it is, or you're doing handmade favors, and it's really going to stress you out to not have an answer about how many people and who is exactly attending your wedding until only a couple weeks before, then you're going to want to bump that up. Because let's say you went with, okay, six weeks before I'm sending out the invitations. So you need to leave a week or two for people to actually get the invitations to them. If you're mailing them, especially if you're mailing across the country or across the world. And then, you know, there's still the time, oh, we got it. Oh, looks nice. Yeah, 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 for sure. Oh, I'll go online and RSVP. 
or if you're doing things traditionally and you've sent the little RSVP card for people to put back in the mail, then you've now um, added an extra mailing time. So even if somebody received their invitation, you know, let's say you sent it at the six week, they received it at the five week before your wedding, right away they opened it up, said, of course we're coming, filled out their RSVP card, dropped it right back in the mail, you then get it back four weeks before your wedding. That's still only one month before your wedding to have those final numbers. And that is in the best case scenario. What if it gets lost in the mail? Or what if it's just a normal person who doesn't respond to their mail the minute they get it? Um, there's lots of lots of issues there. So I would strongly suggest leaning more towards eight to 12 weeks before your wedding, sending out those invitations. I think three months before people should definitely be able to commit and then leaving yourself lots of extra time. You know, let's say your venue and your caterer say, Hey, we need final numbers four weeks before make sure you're getting those in or those RSVP cards back five weeks before or six weeks before you want to give yourself that buffer, that window, because odds are you're going to need to follow up with people. People are terrible at RSVPing. Even if you make it so easy, even if you send them a link and say, Hey, just click here, RSVP on our website. It's so easy. Or we included a self-addressed and self-stamped card. All you have to do is just check the box, drop it off. Nope. People are the worst. People won't do it. You will have to follow up. You'll have to get on the phone or call or text or email, whatever it is. So leave yourself a ton of time. And then the other consideration here is COVID. As I was saying earlier, there are so many weddings happening in 2021 and 2022. So even if you were thinking, hey, you know, we're just getting married on a Saturday in June, we probably don't need to send save the dates. It's nothing special. You might want to because odds are people in your life are actually going to have quite a few weddings to attend next summer, or next, next summer, if we're moving into 2022. So you might want to send those save the dates. And again, head back to that mini-sode, do you need save the dates and listen to all the different options I give for doing that on the cheap. Um, and, you know, with COVID, if people need to make travel arrangements, maybe they're not quite comfortable traveling, or if they are, they want to make sure they can make all their arrangements ahead of time, you know, set up travel insurance, uh, make sure that their hotel room is refundable, all those other things. Maybe they want to rent a car because they're not comfortable with uh, taking the train or whatever it is. So that's another reason to send out your save the dates and your invitations earlier. So my opinion would be sending out save the dates more like nine to 12 months ahead of time, even yes, a full year ahead of time is totally fine if you're just sort of letting people know and kind of understand that you might need to let them know uh, a few times and <laughs> there's a good chance they're not going to remember. And if you're not exactly sure who you're inviting, you could always do a save the date to sort of your um, tier one, your, your A group. So, you know, maybe that's just your parents and your siblings and your very best friends. And again, that can be a super simple, just sending out a text. Hey, we've officially booked, you know, May 12th, 2022, save it, save the date. And then maybe a little bit later, you send out those formal save the dates if you want to do uh, an evite version or a postcard, whatever it is, and then doing the actual invitations more eight to 12 weeks ahead of your wedding day. That would be my suggestions for sending all of those things out. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Unconventional Wedding Planning Podcast. I hope you liked it, and I hope to do more Q&A episodes in the future. If you really want to make my day, you can leave me a rating and review, subscribe so you don't miss the next episode, and tell a friend about the podcast. And remember, there are no official wedding planning rules.